So this is part three of our three-part series, and I've, I've had a lot of fun with this, putting this together and, and sharing it with you all, and I really appreciate the, the positive feedback that so many of you have given to me, and especially from you younger folks. I've been getting a lot of positive feedback from you, letting me know that you're listening, letting me know that you appreciate it, and that really warms my heart. And over the past couple of weeks, we've learned a number of things, a number of things. We, we learned the importance of a humble and Christ-like attitude. We learned about the keys to God's kingdom and that as Christians, God doesn't just want us riding in the kingdom bus. He wants us driving it. We saw the stark contrast between Herod the Great and Christ the child. We saw that Jesus shattered the dignity gap. And if you've missed on these past sermons, just get online, get on YouTube, search Edmund Adventist, and you can pull up part one and part two. We also looked last week at one of the harshest things that Jesus ever said. But we came to an understanding as to why he's so serious about our treatment of children and young people. We committed to the goal of never causing a child to stumble, never erecting barriers up between them and God. And finally, we learn that Jesus views a child's innocent faith as wholly valid and worth protecting. Now, all that being said, I've still got questions. I've still got questions. We talked a good bit over the past couple weeks about the faith of children. So with that being said, oh, I need to get connected over here. Sorry, AV team. All right. So in connection with uh, uh, talking about childlike faith, I've got some questions. When is a person old enough to even have faith in God? How does it begin? And how early could we adults be in danger of the wrath of Jesus for blocking access to children? You know, research tells us that the majority of people who decide to give their lives to Christ do so before they turn 18. Giving children the opportunity to fall in love with Jesus at a young age is extremely important, extremely important. Yet there's a deeper, a deeper level of conversation that we should have on this topic. If you're anything like me, you've probably assumed, at least somewhere in your subconscious, that faith is something you're only capable of possessing once you get closer to adulthood. If you've ever mined down into some tough theology at any point in your faith journey or gone through some of those dark night of the soul experiences, or come up against tough questions that you couldn't answer, or like Jacob, 
wrestled with God. You might look at a young child and think they couldn't possibly grasp this stuff. And you'd be right in thinking that to a point, which is also part of Jesus's point and his teachings about children. Does Jesus ever tell us that children should be more like adults? Nope. Instead, he said this, therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Oh, yeah. That's what Jesus said. Elementary age children probably aren't going to be arguing about eschatology anytime soon. See, even there, we, we adults, we tend to think, make things more difficult. Eschatology is just a fancy theological term for the end times. The end times. Which I believe, and I know that many of you believe that we are living in the midst of. But I think it's safe to assume that Jesus knew our adult tendency to get deeply distracted from the main point. And so he did his best to try and direct us back to the simpler faith of a child. Now, I'm not saying you should give up on learning. I believe that a day without learning something new is a day wasted. I'm a guy who strives to read at least 100 books every single year. And I hope that by reading and by learning and by growing, we can all come to a deeper understanding and a deeper love of God. So yeah, learn all you can. Continue learning, even into your latter years. Just don't get distracted from the crux of the matter. Don't lose sight of the good news. The good news that God loves you so much that he died for you. That's the good news. And not while you are at your best, but he died for you while you were at your worst. Paul reminds us in Romans 5, 8, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is good news indeed. But it doesn't just stop here. He also loves your neighbor that believes differently about the Sabbath than you do. He loves your coworker who voted differently than you did. He loves that person from another race, another denomination, another religion, another neighborhood, and you can just continue filling in the blanks. And you know what's really wild? Kids get that. Kids get it. They understand this better than we grown-ups do. Remember that Jesus also dropped this bombshell. Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom 
of heaven. Wow. Jesus is not only discrediting the belief that kids don't understand God in faith, but he's actually telling us that children get God better than we do. Whew. They understand it on a profoundly deeper level. This is serious stuff, dear friends. Serious stuff. Unless we change and become like little children, we won't see the kingdom. Just let that sink in. Next time you are tempted to be judgmental or to be harsh or to view yourself better than someone else. In a similar vein to what we've been discussing, I'm sure you realize that Adults wrestle with questions that kids don't. We get all caught up in these questions that kids are just like, huh? What? What's the problem here? We're dealing with a lot of implications here. But I don't believe this is an attack on deeper theology. As we grow, as we age, as we mature in our faith, We will wrestle with hard questions. We will have dark seasons. But hopefully this will all bring us into a deeper understanding of God's character and his love for us. We just don't want to ever think ourselves so knowledgeable that we lose our original, innocent trust. We don't want to lose our first love. That feeling we first had when we learned about Jesus. That feeling we first had when we heard the good news. The world wants to tell us that cynicism equates to wisdom. And it's easy to get so caught up in in climbing that ivory tower of deeper theological knowledge that we forget. We don't have to ascend to God. The gospel tells us that God descended down to us. Casey Tigret, in his book, Becoming Curious, talks about the practice of asking questions to help us avoid the trap of cynicism. He wrote this. There's a difficult line to walk between what we need to know and what falls into the realm of mystery. Walking that line often wears on our nerves and causes incredible tension. And so we settle for easy answers. We stop asking questions. We give up. We begin to lose the one thing that fiercely energizes the transformation of our souls. Something beautiful, poetic, joyful, and happily disruptive. And that thing is curiosity. Curiosity. Did you know that kids, and, and those of you with young kids, you will, you'll, you'll know this, but for everyone else, did you know that kids on average ask 400 questions every single day? <laughs> 400. And they ask that many questions because they know they don't know. They know they don't know. They realize the limit to their own understandings, yet they're still trying to figure out more about the world that they live in. 
I got a lot of respect for that. Yet we adults, we slowly lose this curiosity as the years go by. As we are taught that asking questions shows that we don't have it all together. Mm. You know, I, I teach Bible once a week to high schoolers at Parkview Adventist Academy. And one thing that I always tell them at the start of the semester and usually a couple other times throughout the year, because I want engagement, I want dialogue. Right, guys? I see you back there, yeah? I say the only stupid question is the question you have but don't ask. If you got the question, ask it. It doesn't matter if you feel it's too elementary or you feel like it's silly. If you got the question, ask it. And odds are very high that other people have that same question. When we ask questions, we learn. We grow. We're in pretty bad shape when we start deceiving ourselves into thinking that we have it all together, like the church leaders in Jesus' day did. Now, earlier I poked a little fun at at end-time theology because for me, it's one of my biggest frustrations with grown-up Christians. Eschatology is not bad in and of itself, but way too many people spend way too much time trying to figure out the stuff that Jesus assured us that we would never figure out. They try and pinpoint dates and timelines, make predictions and get all sensational, which oftentimes just makes Christians look silly. Jesus himself stated that even he did not know. He said, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So yes, it's important to have an understanding about how our story ends, how it all wraps up. But way too many Christians are, in the words of Jesus, straining at gnats and swallowing camels when it comes to eschatology. I meet too many Christians that, like the Pharisees in Jesus' day, are obsessed with looking for signs. Every newspaper article Every current event is a new excuse to make a prediction or induce fear in the minds of others. The book of Revelation is not an unveiling of signs and symbols. The book of Revelation is an unveiling of Christ and his character. And this is why I love Pastor Elizabeth Talbot's approach to the book of Revelation and eschatology. But sadly, she is a rare exception. And besides her, children might be the only people really poised to have the correct view of Revelation. Jesus rides in on his flying horse. There's a huge battle. And then Jesus slays the dragon. The good guys win, right? There it is. Simple, succinct, done. And his pastor Talbot, mentions numerous times in her book, Revelation, the fifth gospel, Jesus wins. Jesus wins. And I know that that's something we can all agree on. Look at our children. They aren't arguing. They aren't holding grudges based on personal minor interpretations of the seals or the vials or the king of the north. 
or any of the other myriad of symbols presented in apocalyptic literature. Like I said, it's not wrong to look at these things. It's not wrong to seek answers. But we start drawing battle lines and say, well, he doesn't get it because he doesn't agree with this, or she doesn't get it because she views this a little bit differently. Let's focus on the winner here, guys. Let's focus on the winner. Neil Gaiman, in his imaginative tale, Coraline, paraphrased G.K. Chesterton when he wrote, fairy tales are more than true, not because they tell us dragons exist, but because they tell us that dragons can be beaten. Every child knows that a story is supposed to have a happy ending. And why do they know that? Is it just simply because they enjoy fairy tales? I believe it's deeper than that. I believe it's simply because God wrote it on our hearts. He wrote it on our hearts. We were born with an already existing knowledge deep in our souls that our prince really will come that there will be a glorious wedding someday and that evil, wicked dragon will be slain, never to rise again. But sadly, somewhere along the way, we grown-ups convinced ourselves that it was just too good to be true. Life beat us down, and we forgot the joy that comes with hoping for a happy end. That is until Jesus came and reminded us that kids actually got this right. Eugene Peterson captured something beautiful with his translation of Colossians 1.28. The Message Bible puts it this way. We teach in a spirit of profound common sense so that we can bring each person to maturity. To be mature is to be basic. Christ no more, no less. Are we willing to take Paul at his word? If so, we should aim to argue less about which world leader might lead to the end of the world or what law might bring about the end time events we see in Revelation and instead spend more time being loving and being curious. There's enough fear and uncertainty in the world right now. Why would we want to add to it? People are searching for hope and comfort. Let's give it to them in the name of Jesus. Ellen White, one of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, had this to say, the shortness of time is urged as an incentive for us to seek righteousness and to make Christ our friend. This is not the great motive. It savors of selfishness. Is it necessary that the terrors of the day of God be held before us to compel us through fear to right action? This ought not to be. Jesus is attractive. He is full of love, mercy, and compassion. He proposes to be our friend, to walk with us through all the rough pathways of life, He says to you, I am the Lord thy God. Walk with me and I will fill thy path with light. In Colossians 3, Paul tells us that love is the bond 
of perfection. Peter tells us that love covers a multitude of sins. And John reminds us that God himself is love. We could all use a little more love in our lives. We could all do well to share it a little more too. Now, throughout this three-part series, I know that I've been a bit critical of the church at times. I truly believe that we can do better in numerous areas, but I only say these things because I care. Because I love this church. Because I love you all. And I put myself in the same boat. I can do better as well. But I also believe that we have the greatest opportunity to advance the kingdom of God through the church today in a way that wasn't possible in past generations. We are set up for success if we get this right. And you know, when I think about it, I believe that Jesus must love how far we've come. He must be pleased with how much good is being done in the world in his name. Yet there's always room for improvement. So if we're interpreting, as we did last week, Jesus' millstone comment and also his anger at blocking access to the least of these, whether they be children or the poor or the sick or the hungry or the marginalized, Let me share a story that just puts all this on the table in, I believe, a good and practical way. Pastor Tim Harlow shared this true story in his book, What Made Jesus Mad? This is a football story. It takes place in Texas. And whether, you know, we're here in Oklahoma or down in Texas or over in Alabama, you know how football is viewed, right? It's a big deal. Oftentimes, it's a God with a little G. (laughs) Football is important. But let's see what good can come from it. Because Grapevine Faith Baptist is a private Christian prep school. And one year, they arranged to play a game against Gainesville State School, which is a correctional facility for juvenile offenders. Chris Hogan, coach of the faith team, had a radical idea about how to help the students from both teams come to a better understanding of Jesus. Faith always had a good football program. And on that year, they were going into the game seven and two. Seven and two. They had had money. They had equipment. They had coaches. They had supportive parents in the stands. They had fans coming to their games. Gainesville was 0-8, 0-8. And as you can imagine, working at a correctional facility is not the dream job of any football coach. They had few resources, and the young men came and went depending on their conviction sentencings. And it's unlikely these young men had any supportive parents in the stands. They didn't have fans coming to their game. But Coach Hogan and his crew from Faith laid out a plan with their families and fans ahead of the game with Gainesville. 
he asked half of the attendants to go to the other side and cheer for the opposing team on this particular night. He wrote to the fans, here's the message I want you to send. You are just as valuable as any other person on planet Earth. And when one of his own players asked why they were doing such a thing, he responded, imagine if you didn't have a home life. Imagine if everyone had pretty much given up on you. Now imagine what it would mean for hundreds of people to suddenly believe in you. It started with half of the faith fans making a spirit line for their opponents to run through while they cheered them on, complete with a huge banner emblazoned with their name so they could run through it at the end of the line. And these fans, they went all in. They knew the Gainesville players' names and everything. Isaiah, the Gainesville team quarterback, said this, I never in my life thought I'd hear people cheering for us to hit their kids. Alex, one of Gainesville's defensive linemen, said, I thought maybe they were confused. They started yelling defense when their team had the ball. I said, what? What are they doing cheering for us? Gerald, a lineman with a three-year sentence, said, we can tell people are a little afraid when we come to the games. You can see it in their eyes. They're looking at us like we're criminals. But these people, they were yelling for us by our names. As expected, the Faith Lions won the game easily. Texas coaches are nice, but not, not nice enough to let somebody else beat them. Even so, the Gainesville players were so happy that they gave their head coach, Mark Williams, a Gatorade shower anyway. And after the game, both Faith and Gainesville gathered on the field to pray. And I believe that this event right here must have made Jesus very, very happy. Isaiah, Gainesville's quarterback, even surprised everyone by offering to be the one to pray. Coach Hogan recalled that no one had any idea what he was going to say. Isaiah prayed this. Lord, I don't know how this happened, so I don't know how to say thank you but I never would have known there were so many people in the world that cared about us. A reporter from ESPN was there covering the events, and this was the report. And it was a good thing everybody's heads were bowed because they might have seen Hogan wiping away tears. As the young men walked back to their bus, escorted by guards, the community of faith met each of them with a bag for the ride home that contained some snacks, a Bible, and a personal letter from one of the players on the faith team. When Coach Williams got a moment with Coach Hogan, he grabbed his shoulders and said, you'll never know what your people did for these kids tonight. You'll never, ever know. But dear friends, Jesus knows. And Jesus was telling his disciples this 2,000 years ago. And he's telling us today. He taught the importance of a humble, childlike character. He taught that when it comes to children and the least of these, we should never cause them to stumble or place a barrier between them and God. He taught that he views a child's innocent faith as something wholly valid and worth protecting.
And he taught us about the tremendous opportunity we have in working with and alongside children. And we can even start tonight, right? By being there for our Pathfinder Club. And if not in person, then through donations. If not through donations, then through your support and through your prayers. Let's take Jesus' teachings seriously because you never know the impact that you might have on a young person's life. And you may also never know the impact that they can have on you. So let's support them, encourage them, protect them, listen to them, learn from them, because Jesus taught how important it was for all of us to become like little children. Amen and amen.